Well, good evening, everybody. Hope everybody had a good weekend. Hope everybody rested. Hope you had a good day at church today. So this week, we're going to be talking about uh, marriage from a biblical perspective. That was one of the one of the questions that someone put in there, or, or at least one of the topics someone put in the comments that they wanted to talk about. And so last week, <clears throat> we talked about forgiveness. So if you missed that, you can go back and look at it, or it's on my podcast, you can go find it there at RK Ministries. Uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll talk about the topic of hell. And then after that, if no other topics come in, we'll start a Bible study through the book of Revelation. So that's kind of the plan where we're going. So tonight we're just going to, it's going to be a lot of scripture reading, a lot of commenting on scripture and talking about this issue of marriage, marriage from a biblical perspective. So let's just pray and, and we'll jump to it. Father, thank you for this day and for this time and for this opportunity. Pray that you give us wisdom and insight and help us have understanding about this uh, issue, this topic of marriage uh, as it relates to your word and, and what you have uh, defined marriage to be and how we ought to live in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so for most of my lifetime, at least adult lifetime, marriage and family has been under attack by uh, the spirit of this age, we will say. And marriage and family, at least, in, is, I think, the fundamental building block of society. And inherent in the concept of family is the concept or the issue of marriage. Because without marriage, then there is no context of family in the sense of procreation. <clears throat> And I think that it was Alan Keyes, I forget what year it was, but he and Barack Obama were on a show uh, talking about the issue of marriage. And his definition was that marriage by principle uh, is defined by the ability to procreate. And the idea is that that's why marriage was instituted from the very beginning of time when God created, which we'll talk about, uh, and throughout history. That's really what marriage has been about, is a man and a woman coming together and beginning a family. And that family is the fundamental element of society and all other organizations that we find in this world. And so <clears throat> the only way I know how to do this is just go at it from looking at God's Word and see what the Bible says about the issue of of marriage because there are a lot of people today who uh, have tried to redefine and re reconstruct the whole idea issue of marriage but God had a pretty definite understanding of what that is because he created it and I think it's appropriate for us to look at God's word <clears throat> so I thought we'd look at God's design for marriage to start with and God's design for marriage happened at the very beginning of time during creation is when God uh, established the institution of marriage. And obviously we have to go to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 to see uh, how God established this institution that we call marriage, this concept of family. Um, and so, you know, God had created everything in uh, that we see around us, essentially, uh, in Genesis chapter 1. And then when you get down to verse 27, 
uh, one of the last things, one of the last things that he created was man. And so in Genesis 1, 27, 28, the Bible says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he goes on to talk about doing it and having dominion over it. Uh, So, in the very outset, when God created the heavens and the earth, when God created humanity, he created male and he created female. And he brought that male and female together uh, in a marriage ceremony, a marriage relationship. And we'll talk more about the purposes in just a moment. But primarily in this sense for companionship, and procreation uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord kind of gives us a more detailed uh, look at this instance of creation of of mankind. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, just listen to what God's word says. The Lord God said... It is not good that man should be alone. Now, if you look at the rest of Genesis, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, uh, after every day of creation, the Lord saw what he created and he said it was good. And so you have that refrain uh, at the end of every act of creative work of the Lord on each day, and it was good. The only time God said something is not good in, in the creation narrative is what we find here in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18, the Lord said it was not good that man should be alone. So the implication is that man needed a companion. He needed a helpmeet. And we already know from Genesis chapter 1, God's going to bring woman out of man, and they're going to enter into this marriage relationship for that uh, fulfilling of companionship. So the Lord goes on to say, in verse 18, chapter 2, Genesis, I will make him a helper fit for him and then the scene is that adam's there and god's made every animal and he's bringing all the animals before adam to name them now out of the ground the lord created uh, or had formed every beast of the field every bird of the heaven brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever he called every living creature that was his name the man gave names to all livestock, to the bird to, uh, of the heaven, uh, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now pause. Adam sitting there. Hey, horse. He horse, she horse. Cow. He cow, she cow. Right? Whatever the animals were. And through all of that list of animals, there was a, a, a knot or insects or birds or whatever. There was not a helper that was suitable for Adam. So out of everything God had already created, not one of them was suitable to be that companion that Adam needed. So God says, him, says in verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to him. So pause again. 
when God saw there was, and obviously God knew this, but in the narrative, when God says there was no helper suitable for him out of all the other created beings, God put him to sleep, God got a rib, and God made a woman. God made the feminine or female version of him, Adam. And so the implication is that God's construct of companionship for man is rooted in this idea of male-female relationship in the confines of marriage, as we've already seen in Genesis chapter 1. Then here's Adam's reply. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So again, the implication was, out of all creation, there was nothing suitable for him until God created one like him that would complement him, and that was the female version of Adam. So God's understanding of this compatible relationship was a man and a woman in this marriage institution. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so again, that's the intimate nature of the marriage relationship. Not to be too graphic, but it entails all the intimate relationships of the marriage relationship, including what is necessary for procreation, but even beyond that, the, the spiritual connection beyond the physical connection, the emotional connection. All of those things are inherent in this companionship uh, relationship that Adam had. And it was Adam the man, Eve the female, and they came together in holy matrimony. <clears throat> so therefore, the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So from the very beginning, God's institution of marriage by definition is one man and one woman brought together in holy matrimony and we'll talk more about those purposes in just a moment but jesus verifies this when he talks about marriage in matthew chapter 19 uh, when they uh, come to him about the issue of divorce which we'll talk about in just a little bit but when they come to him and ask him about this issue of divorce, Jesus goes to creation to instruct them on God's concept of marriage. And so Jesus in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, so when was marriage instituted again? From the beginning. It's a part of the created order. Uh, it's not something that society has come up with or thought up. It's something that God instituted in the created order. So, he said, he, he, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And again, not to belabor this point, and I don't know how long this video will stay up on Facebook once somebody catches wind of what we're talking about. But marriage, by God's design was and has always been and will always be one male and one female for a lifetime. That's part of the created order. Not to veer off too much on the transgenderism and all the things that are going on today. 
that God's created design for humanity is male and female. It's not what a person is assigned at birth. It's what God has created them to be at birth. And so that's God's construct for humanity. And right now, in our society today, we are trying to unravel. We are saying we are our own God, and we are, we are making gods of ourselves, and we are mutilating and abusing children as a society uh, when, when, when they're at their most vulnerable time in their uh, emotional, mental, and physical uh, development. And we are, as our Sunday school lesson talked about this morning, offering our children to the idol of our culture. In the Sunday school lesson, it was Molech. Uh, today, it's the, it's the culture of death that we're offering our children to. And, and all of this is designed to undermine and destroy the concept of, of God's created order. All the way down to the individual that God created, God's concept of marriage and family. The culture of death today, the spirit of this age, is trying to destroy the fundamental element of society, which is the nuclear family, a mother and a father who bring up children. All right, verse 5, and he says, Jesus, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, he's quoting what was what was happening at the moment or the time of the creation of man and woman and brought they were brought into this marriage relationship and he says in verse six so there they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let not man separate so jesus again the foundation of marriage jesus tied it back to creation marriage is not what the government says it is. It's not what you know your state or your county says it is. It's not what society has come together and defined it as. Marriage is what God says it is. And throughout history, intuitively, human beings have understood that marriage is what God instructed it to be or, or created it to be in <clears throat> in the beginning. One man and one woman join together in holy matrimony for a lifetime is God's perfect plan for marriage. Now I get it. There are plenty of people who have, we have messed that up in our society. But God, God gives us a way for redemption, right? In Christ Jesus, even in those areas as well. So that leads to the second point that I put on my notes anyway piggybacking off of this idea that God created marriage and he created marriage for a particular purpose. The first thing that I thought about, again, we've already talked about it, and that's companionship. Uh, he said it's not good that man should be alone. Now I get it. There are people like me. I'm an introvert, right? Uh, not an outgoing person, but that doesn't negate the fact that as a human being, I need companionship. And God created me to need companionship. And he created you to need companionship. And God's brought me a companion that I'm <clears throat> married 34 years ago this year. And so God's one of God's purposes for marriage was to fulfill that role of companionship in the life of a human being. And all the needs that come with this concept of companionship, the perfect environment to fulfill those needs was is within a God-honoring 
covenant relationship that we call marriage. And that's why he says that a man will leave his father and his mother, right? So in our society, we have so diminished the institution of marriage and the concept of family that we have caused our children to not want to or not be eager to go into a, a world and find a companion and settle down and get married and have children. <clears throat> and I think that's part of the reason we're seeing some of the things we're seeing in our society today, because I, I know that everyone can't have children. Everyone's not intended to be married. Paul talks about that in, in his letter to the church of Corinth, right? Paul was not married. He says, Hey, I wish everybody could be like me, but, for the most of us, they were the exceptions to the rule. God's created most of us to enter into this relationship of marriage. And it's the natural drive that God's put in our life to, to, to grow up, leave our father and our mother, find that spouse that God has for us, and then weave our lives together as one in a unified purpose and a unified covenant under the authority of God and on mission for God. That's what marriage ought to be about. And then the second part of what marriage ought to be about, at least from our text that we've read so far, is it is the means for bringing more human beings into the world, right? To propagate our species. As the Lord said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill uh, the earth. And the issue with children today is, again, we <clears throat> we think a person is, is, we look at them like they have two heads if they have more than two children, right? And our philosophy today is one for me and one for you, and thank the Lord we're through, right? And so we teach our children, hey, you don't want to have children, right? The, the way we talk about it. Well, that's not God's intention, and that's not a biblical concept, because children are a blessing from the Lord. And I want to share just a couple passages of, of Scripture with you. One of the reasons, again, to parallel this text that we've just read, it's in Malachi, and, and Israel's being judged by God in Malachi, in particular the religious leaders are being judged by God and, and reprimanded and rebuked by God in Malachi, but listen to what the Lord says to them through his prophet in chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 but you say why does he not in other words why, why, is, why is God bringing this judgment that he just declared previous to this text because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless and again we can pause right there and talk about this concept in, in marriage and in, in the covenant of marriage is faithfulness right faithfulness to God and faithfulness to one another and faithfulness to our family. That's an important part. That's why marriage, we, we've got to look at marriage as more than a, 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 a legal document that we get from a courtroom or justice of the peace. Marriage is a covenant that we make with our spouse before God. Right? And we ought to be faithful to our spouse and faithful to God in this covenant that we have made. Says, though she is your companion, again, that idea of companionship, and your wife by covenant, there's the word, 
Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So see, marriage has everything to do with coming into covenant relationship with your spouse before a holy God who blesses that union through the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the husband and wife. And again, if you're not a believer, you don't have the Holy Spirit and you don't have God's sanction on what it is that you're doing. The only thing you have guaranteed for you is damnation. And so you must turn your life over to Christ. And uh, then you can understand truly the concept of what this covenant relationship in marriage uh, truly means. And he goes on, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, again, not the only purpose, but it is one very important purpose of marriage is to produce offspring. One of the greatest mission fields in the world is your home. It's when you come together as believing husband and believing wife and you have children that you raise in the, in the admonition of the Lord. And you train them in the precepts and concepts of the Lord. And we'll talk more about that uh, in, in just a moment. And the thing that we've got to get back to is understanding that children are a blessing. They're not a burden. <clears throat> They're a blessing in your life and in your family. It is a reward from God when he blesses you with, with children. And so, one, don't take that for granted when you have children, right, that God brings in your life. Understand the blessing that God has given you and the responsibility that God has given you to those children that he brings into your life. Uh, Psalm 127, 3-5, the Bible says, Behold, children are a heritage. Some translations say blessing, but they are both a blessing and a heritage uh, from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. And this is one of my favorite parts of this passage. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed in the, is the man who feels his quiver with them. And so the idea is God intended for us to come together and have children so that we could raise them in the admonition of the Lord and, and bring them uh, before God and, and share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ and see them come to faith in Christ and then prepare them and send them out into a lost world to be missionaries for God in this world. <clears throat> and there are two aspects to, to that that I think we have problems with. One, we've already talked about, in our society today, it, it is it is seems like more of a burden sometimes for people to have children than, than a blessing. For them to have children and, and we've got to correct that <clears throat> by being champions of the blessing that comes with children and having influence over the lives of those who are young adults who are married and and even those children who come up and teach them that it is an honor to be in a married monogamous relationship male female relationship uh, where we uh, raise a family and teach them the precepts of God and bring them uh, to the doorsteps of the kingdom of God and see them come to faith in Jesus Christ and prepare them to go into a world and continue that process in their own family. And then the second thing, sometimes we as, we as believers, we forget that the education, educational responsibility of our family 
lays on on our shoulders, right? Not the government's shoulders, okay? And, and I, I'll just go ahead and tell you, we, we homeschooled our children from day one. That was our choice before we ever got married. We, we, decide, we decide this is what we're going to do. Was it easy all the time? No. Was it a struggle? Yes, it was a struggle. But if we had to do it over again, we'd do it all over again. Mainly because we see what the culture and the education system in this world does to the minds of children. And all you got to do is look at everything they're trying to implement in the educational system today. Uh, and teach their children. They're continuing to try to propagate the spirit of this age and all the uh, alphabet mafia, uh, you know, agenda. They're trying to shove that onto the minds of our children, and we have to stand up against that. And one of the best ways you can stand up against that is as a as a Christian, godly parent, is to homeschool your children. And I get it. Hey, it's tough, and you got to make sacrifices. I'm not denying that, but isn't that sacrifice worth it? Isn't that sacrifice one of the sacrifices that be worth doing? You might not be able to go on all the vacations you wanted to go on. You might not be able to have all the things that you wanted to have, right? But there's no greater blessing than honoring God and, and living up to the responsibility God's called you to and trying to raise your children to the best of your ability and educate them in the precepts of God's Word. And that's our responsibility. No one else's responsibility. So, you know, I'm an advocate of of homeschooling, right? And there's a lot of fears and questions that people have about that. And we would do another show on that if somebody wants to talk about that issue. But our responsibility is the education of our children to guard their heart, soul, and their mind. And the best way we can do that is take charge of their education. And the Bible helps us out with that in a couple places. Uh, Proverbs 22, 6, most people know this passage that are believers train up a child in the way he should go and even when he is old he will not depart from it and i think sometimes we forget there's two aspects to that to that uh to that passage it again has to do with the education one is the the spiritual aspect of it we are to train up our children in this sense in the way they should go by by um raising them in the admonition of the Lord, teaching them the things of God's word. And we'll talk more about that in the next verse we look at. But the other side of that coin is every single one of our children are different. God created them with different personalities, with different skills and different abilities. All right. Uh, we're all created equal, but we're not all equitably created in the sense that we can all achieve the same thing and we all have the same level uh, and ability in life. Well, that's just hogwash. All you got to do is look out in the world and you see that, right? If you don't see that and you're trying to push for something like that, then you're blind to the reality of humanity. But the second thing is understand that child. And I, I got to tell you, my wife is a lot better at that than I ever was. But understand the personality of that child and understand how God has gifted that child. And try not, don't force some, some cookie-cutter mold onto every one of them. Train them up in the way that God has created them. Use the, the, the personality and use the abilities and skills that God's given them to help them become the best that they can be that God has intended for them to be. And guess what? That takes effort on our part, doesn't it? Right? it we, that's, that, we can't just set them in front of a television and we can't just set them in front of a computer. Uh, I get it. Those are good tools to use for teaching and educating, 
but they also can be tools that cause us to be lazy in what God's asked us to do. And secondly, there's some perverted things that are on there that try to get into the hearts and minds of our children every chance that they can. So we've got to guard all those particular things. So again, in this concept of marriage, I want to belabor this issue of children, but I think it's a very important aspect of, of the issue of marriage and our role as Christian parents. Probably the premier verse that we most of us go to when it talks about the education of our children is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And again, this is the Lord talking to Israel, but we can glean from uh, the truths that the Lord shares with Israel about the raising of their children. And it's Deuteronomy 6 4, it's, it's what is commonly called the Shema, uh, where the Lord uh, starts out talking to Israel and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength or your might. Uh, and again, we can push Paul's right there for just a moment. One of the things that we have to do. If we want to be godly Christian parents and a godly Christian influence, is we got to take our own heart and mind and soul to start with, and then we can help someone else in their life take care of their own their heart, mind, and soul as it relates to their relationship with God. And he goes on in verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Press pause. Uh, again, we've got to internalize these things in our life. They've got to be real in us, and then we can appropriately teach them to our children. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Again, that takes effort, right? It's an intentional thing. So it's, it's you, I'm, I'm about to say something that will get me in trouble with most Christians even today, but that's okay. Here's what we got to understand. Hey, I love football. I played football. I love to watch football. Suffered NFL. I don't like what they're doing as a culture anymore. NFL, and probably won't like what the colleges are doing anymore. So I may not be watching football long. But anyway, I like sports in that sense, and I think it's good to be involved in sports. But here's my problem with sports: sports has become a god in our society. It's usurped the place of God in our society. And the reason I say that because I live in Wetumpka, Alabama. And if it, on a Sunday afternoon, if you're leaving church and you drive down 14 during the time, uh, the 14 bypass during the time of uh, baseball season, you're going to see hundreds of little children out there playing baseball when they probably ought to be uh, hearing instruction from God. Hey, I get it. You know, we, we want the best for our children. But I'm telling you, the best for your children might not be a, a uh, scholarship or a, a path to the major league. The best for your children, first and foremost, is for you as a Christian parent to teach them to love and honor and serve God. And so I'll leave that alone for another day. We have to teach them diligently to our children. And there's so many things that are pulling for the attention of our children. So we have to... We have to make this an intentional effort on our part to drive their minds to the things of God. He goes on to say, You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Again, it ought to be what drives our family. It ought to be the center of our thought. It ought to be the center of our conversation. And unfortunately today, I think in, in too many Christian homes, 
that Christ and God and the gospel and God's word are not the center of our conversation. They, that's not what drives who we are. It's just something we do on a Sunday or a Wednesday. And we've got to get out of that. We've got to take this seriously, what God has called us to be in this marriage relationship. And this is another thing about marriage. And I'm going to get to rambling here in a minute. Another thing about marriage. I think today we've skewed it. And I'll probably talk a little bit about this at the end. We've skewed the whole concept. Okay. We think that marriage is all about us, right? All about my desires and my pleasures and my needs. That, that's generally, and I get it when you're dating, you, you, you may be the other way, but essentially you're still trying to meet your own needs and your own desires. What we got to understand is marriage is not, it's not a 50-50, it's 100-100. I, give a high, I ought to give 100% of myself to this relationship that we have and my spouse ought to give 100% of herself to this relationship we have and we ought to come together and understand it's not just about us. It's about the children that God's blessed us with. It's about the mission and the vision that God has set a, set in play as it relates to marriage and the family as it relates to his kingdom work and society. So we think, we think too little of marriage. Marriage, if it's, the, if it's the building block of society, if family is the fundamental element of society, it's so much bigger than just you and me. This is a mission that God has set us on. And we ought to, we ought to let that mission drive this idea of marriage. And I think if we'll start thinking in those kinds of terms, then our, the marriages in, in Christian families will last longer than they do today because we'll understand that it's, it's, it's more than just about me feeling good all the time. It is a covenant and a commitment and a mission that God has set me out on in this relationship. So verse 8, you shall bind them as signs on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So everything about you, everything about who you are, everything about your relationship with your husband or your wife, everything about your parenting, everything about your family unit ought to be centered around the truths of God's word. They ought to be everywhere you are, ever present before your eyes is the implication of this text today. And until we get that right in marriage relationships, then we can't expect for the commitment and the aspect of covenant to follow. We've got to understand that God's got to be the center and God's called us together for a purpose and a reason. And then the third aspect or what was I calling these? Uh, the third reason or purpose is illustration. Illustration. Paul brings us out in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul's talking about, uh, at least starting in verse 25, he's talking about relationships. And, and on into chapter 6, he's talking about relationships. In this particular section, he's talking about the relationship uh, of husband and wife. And so in, in verse 25, he begins, Husbands, love your wives, and don't miss this statement, husbands, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I got to tell you, that, that's a tall order, isn't it? Have I always done that? No, I don't always do that the way I ought to do it. And Lord has to forgive me and got to help me uh, in being able to do that. 
But that's the kind of love we are to have for our spouse, right? We are to love them as Christ loved us. And how did Christ demonstrate his love for us? He died for us. He stood in our law place. And the family is a picture of that, Paul's going to tell us. And that's how we ought to love our spouses. Then he goes on to say that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word. So it's your responsibility to love her in this way, to help her become the sanctified, holy, godly woman that God intends for her to be. Verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one uh, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So again, this marriage relationship, this family unit is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And when we live in relationship like this, we demonstrate to the world what it means to be in proper relationship with Almighty God. Because we are members of his body, Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So where does Paul anchor his concept of marriage? He anchors it all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to creation, exactly where Jesus anchored it, exactly where we found it in the beginning of the book, right? God's intention for marriage has always been the same. He created it, therefore he defines it and he tells us what it ought to look like. Verse 32, the mystery is prof- this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then he goes on to talk about the wife respecting her husband. But this is an illustration. This marriage, this covenant relationship with your husband or your wife is a picture of that covenant relationship we have with Almighty God. And so as we live together in a godly defined marriage relationship we demonstrate to the world what it looks like to be in relationship with jesus christ as the church his body and we can even in that marriage relationship point people to christ by the way we live our our lives so i mean that's the broad understanding i guess of marriage the best that i can put it together in in the time that we have if you got more questions about that leave them in the comments but i do i did want to hit on a couple other things before we wind this thing down because the obvious question is going to come up what about divorce right because quite obviously you know i don't know what the statistics are now last time i looked at them it was at least 50 percent of non-Christian and Christians that their marriage ends in divorce. And then when people get married again, you know, that's already been divorced. And last time I looked at it, it was like 75% of those end in uh, divorce. But I think the problem is, before we even talk about this issue of divorce, I think one of the main problems is, is we go into marriage with the wrong understanding. 
if we would get the right understanding about what marriage is and we would go into it the right way from the get-go, I think we would see these divorce numbers decline uh, drastically, at least among those who are believers in Jesus Christ, because we ought to know better, right? I get it. There's times when you, you make mistakes and, and there's all, there's forgiveness for it, right? So anyway, we, we talk about this issue of of divorce and, you know, we always ask the wrong questions as believers, I think. Uh, usually the question is uh, that we, we usually ask is what, what are the parameters by which I can get a divorce, right? So we're already in, inheriting that question is the idea that I don't think it's going to make it. What can I do that's biblically uh, appropriate in the issue of divorce? Well, why not come at it a better way? How should I enter into marriage from the very get-go so that I find the kind of person that God wants me to be married to, that God would honor in this relationship? And how can I be the kind of spouse that I need to be? And how can I pray for that spouse, that that spouse would be what God wanted that spouse to be? And how can we make this thing be what God intended for it to be? All that has to be done at the front end, though, right? I get it. You, you can always turn the ship around if you have problems. There's plenty of movies that we've seen about that from a Christian perspective. But I'm just, I'm just saying, I think because of our culture, we, we look at marriage in the wrong way from the get-go. We've got to come back to a biblical understanding of it. And the thing we need to do after we train ourselves what the biblical understanding of marriage is, is we need to begin to train our children what the biblical understanding of marriage is. So that they won't, they won't follow the footsteps of so many others who have ended their marriage. Um, so, what issue of divorce? Here's the thing: I, I would, I would talk to to the issue. I talked to it first this way. Divorce is a very difficult thing, not just for the people who get divorced, but for the people who are their children, right? I'm a product of a divorced family, and uh, the things that I remember about that and the things we went through as a result of that, all of those are th- still things that, that even today, 54 years old, there's still things that I think about. There's still things that impact my life today. So um, before we enter, don't enter into this concept lightly. Let me just read to you God's Word about this issue of divorce. The Lord says in Malachi, again, we, we, I can't remember if I quoted this or not earlier, but in Malachi, yeah, I did. In, in Malachi, again, the, the Lord chastising the, the religious leaders of their day because of how they were treating their wives in particular. Uh, he says to them uh, in, in Malachi, verse two, chapter 2, verse 16, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And he goes on to say, Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And you have to go back and read Malachi and and see how that ties in with everything the Lord has already said about what they're doing, in particular with the wife of their youth. But I read that verse just because you and I need to understand God's against it. Divorce, that is. Okay? And we kind of see that a little bit in Jesus' 
teaching on divorce in Matthew 19. You remember at the end of that, Jesus said, so what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. And it was over the issue of divorce. So Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he agreed with the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, that divorce is something that God hates. Okay? But there are biblical exceptions that would allow for a legitimate divorce, I guess you could say. And Jesus mentioned one of them in his teaching. I don't know if I have the verse here. Yeah, I got it in Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, they come to him about this whole issue of divorce. And he says to them, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, and here's the pertinent phrase that answers our question, what about divorce? Can there ever be a biblical reason for divorce? Well, here's one. Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except uh, with the exception of the ground of sexual immorality. In other words, she's had an affair <coughs> uh, on them, on him. Makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there's a lot in that verse we we could talk about, and you know maybe I will. Um, but here, here's one thing I want to get up out out up front. Although Jesus says here, and what we're going to read that Paul says later, although Jesus says here that he gives the exception of sexual immorality or or adultery, that's not a mandate that one has to get divorced because that happens. Because, I, I, I grant, granted, I, I could imagine it would be hard to work through because you lose all kinds of trust in that moment. But it can be worked through. There are, there are, there are evidences of relationships who have, who have worked through this issue of sexual immorality and come through the other side. With the help of the Lord, you know, a lot of prayer. But that is a biblical exception to this rule of one man, one woman for a lifetime. But it's not a biblical mandate if that person commits adultery that you have to get divorced. Just remember that because we always want to take the easy way out. That's our human nature, right? And then secondly, in a, in a secondary issue, because in the church, this is more of an issue than anywhere else. Because in the world, hey, you get divorced, doesn't matter, go find somebody else and, and do it all over again, right? Redo, uh, rinse and repeat. But in the church, it, it's still to some degree, not as much as it used to be, it is still an issue or a stigma or at least people think about this concept of what if I get divorced and then I remarry? Am I living a lifestyle uh, uh, in a life of adultery all of the time with this with this new husband or this new wife that I have? Because, quite frankly, at the end of this verse, he talks about you, you cause them to commit adultery and whoever marries them to commit adultery. 
And so if you divorce a person just because you wake up one morning, they have bad breath, and you say, I'm done with it, I'm, I'm gone, right? Uh, whatever. You just divorce them for uh, an arbitrary reason. You know, what do we call it today? No-fault divorce, right? We, we're just done with it, we're going to divorce. Well, in that sense, under God, you know, that's a binding covenant that you have broken and you have left. And so, yes, I think in that sense, if that person marries again and they enter into a sexual relationship with this person, they have committed technically adultery. But I don't think the Bible is teaching here that that's a continual sin that they're committing. And the reason I say that is because divorce is not the unpardonable sin, right? Just like suicide is not the unpardonable sin. There's only one unpardonable sin that Christ talked about, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's another topic for another day. So what I'm saying is you can find forgiveness for that, right? You can find forgiveness uh, from the Lord in this issue of divorce. And you can, you can move on beyond that because Christ has dealt with that, right? And you got to understand the whole idea of redemption. If you're a believer in that, and that happens to be your story, Christ has redeemed you already, right? He, redeemed, he, he died for every sin that you're ever going to commit before you are ever born. So he's dealt with your sin in that sense. So you can go to him and you can, you can confess to him that, hey, I blew it. I blew it in that relationship, right? I blew it in that divorce. And you can find peace and comfort and forgiveness in him. And you can move on and become that godly spouse that you need to be that's committed to a monogamous, uh, holy, sanctified, covenantal relationship with your spouse under the authority of God. So it's not the end of the world. You can move on. But it's not God's perfect plan for marriage, divorce. All right? And then Paul gives the second biblical allowance. That's probably a better way to put it, allowance for divorce. And that's in his letter to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm just going to read verses 12 and 15. You can read the whole context to, to see what he's talking about there. But these two verses are pertinent to what we're talking about today. It says, to the rest I say, and he puts it parenthetically in there, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, the other exception is, you two are married, before you came to Christ, one of you gets saved, the other one's still lost. Well, Paul is saying, if that lost person agrees to continue in that relationship with you, uh, then you guys continue on. He goes on to talk about sanctifying the, the husband, or sanctifying the wife, or ultimately leading them to the Lord because of that relationship. But he also says that if that unbelieving uh, spouse decides that they can't stay, that they're free to go. Now, now I'm going I'm to I'm tell you again. That's not a command. Okay, That's why Paul says it the way he says it. 
It says this this is not a commandment. So we ought not go into it saying this is what I intend to do. We can work through it. You can work through it. So don't go into it with saying this is what has to be done because it's done. You don't have to get a divorce. You can see your way through it. You can honor God in that relationship and that marriage. Now I get it. If it becomes uh, abusive verbally or physically, you know, remove yourself from that place, right? But other than those issues, God's called us to live in a relationship together for a lifetime. And even with these particular exceptions, it's not a command that you have to get a divorce in those. You can work through those with God's help if you are willing uh, to do so. But there is forgiveness. If you've gone through this and you've done it all the wrong way, Christ forgives. And you can be renewed and restored. And from this day forward, you can move forward as a new uh, a, a new concept of marriage and a new commitment to what God's marriage ideal is for humanity. So don't let that hold, don't let that weigh over your head the rest of your life. And again, that's, that's really with any sin that's going on in your life. If you're living a habitual life of sin, then God's go, God ought to bring uh, uh, um judgment on you in the sense of chastening he ought to chasten you for that if you're his child he will chasten you for that and you ought to feel uneasy about that but when you come to the place where you turn away from that you turn to christ he can restore you and you can move forward from that day on and and be whole and complete in him and then the last thing I wanted to talk about, and again, if you guys got any other issues or topics or thoughts on this idea of marriage, uh, you can let me know and we may pick them up at another time. And the last main issue I wanted to talk about had to do with, again, our children and in general, the whole idea of dating. Because I think, again, the reason we see what we see in our culture as it relates to marriage and again, I'm, in particular, the lost world, they're going to do what the lost world does. Lost people cannot understand the concepts and precepts of God's word. They cannot obey God. They cannot please God because it's spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit has to come in and transform their hearts. They need to be redeemed. So I expect lost people to, to enter into marriage their own way. I expect lost people to, to, to botch it all up. But the problem is there's so many people who call themselves believers followers of Christ that blotch it all up as well. And I think one of the problems is is we have we have conformed to the concept of marriage that has been propagated by our society over the years. And some of that starts with how we enter into relationships. And it goes back to some of what we were talking about with our kids. Part of that education process with our children is to teach them the importance of relationship. See, we, we, we raise up our kids, generally, in our society. We, we, we want them to get the best education, right? Most of us. We want them to get the best education. We, we want to prepare them in their education for life. We, we push our kids sometimes toward college or, or whatever it is, right? 
We, we want the best for them. We, we work hard. If we, if we, hey, say we like sports and we put our kids in sports and our goal is for them to be the best they can be at sports so they can get a college scholarship and they can get into whatever professional league that they're aiming for. That's our dream for their life. So what do we do? And we work hard with them. We get, we get coaches on the side to teach them all the fundamentals and, and help them to build their knowledge and build their muscle memory and, and, and be better at the game that they're playing. But I got to tell you, one of the most important things that our children are going to do is enter into a relationship with someone. So shouldn't we spend more time teaching them the concepts of what a biblical relationship looks like? Hey, let them play whatever. Let them play football. Let them play baseball. Let them do dance. Let them pick up an instrument, whatever it is. But don't let those things become the priority so that you minimize this idea of the real life issue. The real reason that, or the real purpose in their life is to be enter into a relationship. We got to train our children. That ought to be a desirable thing that we teach our children. And because most of the relationships in, 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 in the world today are so jacked up, we, we, we're scared to let our children get into them, right? We just hope and pray. That's kind of how, how we do it, right? Instead of, instead of intentionally training them, we step back and we hope and pray that they find the right person. That's kind of what we do. Well, let's not do it that way anymore. Let's be intentional in demonstrating to them first what a godly, God-honoring relationship looks like. And then teaching them from the earliest moment of their life that these are the things that that uh, make a good husband or a good wife. These are the biblical concepts of what those are. Help them understand what it looks like to have a godly husband and a godly wife, and what the purpose of marriage is, and what the purpose of this relationship is. And let's let's stop this dating circus this dating carousel that's going on in this world. Because what are we doing with our kids when we just, we allow them, we fret over so many things that they do, but we just let them go off in the wild blue yonder and enter into all kinds of relationships and just hope for the best. And what happens? Our dating scene today, the way people enter into relationships is just practice for divorce. Isn't that what it is? They, they end up with somebody for a little while. They have some spats. They work maybe through one or two. They have some more spats. And then all of a sudden, they don't, they're not with that person anymore. And they're with somebody else. And they, they go through this dating carousel. And hopefully, they, it's like, it's like a carousel roulette, right? And hopefully, they ultimately land on the right winning spot. We got to quit all of that. We, we gotta, we've got to intentionally teach our children the importance of right relationships from the very beginning. We've got to teach them as they grow that this is what God intends for you. This is how it ought to look. This is the kind of person that you're looking for based on biblical concepts of manhood and womanhood, what it means to be a biblical godly husband, what it means to be a biblical godly wife, and don't enter into a relationship until you are ready to marry that person. If you don't, if you enter into a relationship and you don't have in your mind that this could be the one that I want to settle down with the rest of my life, then don't even start the relationship. 
we got to get back to more of what the old school people used to do, and that's courting, right? Instead of this dating nonsense. We need, we need to court one another. They need to come to your house, right? You need to meet them and sit with them and talk with them. They don't need to go out by themselves individually in, in the in the outset. Matter of fact, most of our kids, none of them went out by themselves. They always had somebody else tagging along with them or lurking in the background like a stalker. We got to get back to that. We got to get back to that kind of idea so they get to know one another. And they can learn the family. And they can enter into this thing in the right way from the very beginning. And I think we'll see less of what we see in our society today. And we need to teach them that God has given that purpose to us. When we enter into this relationship, it is for the purpose of having a lifelong companion, having the privilege of raising children and being an example to the world of what it looks like to be in relationship with Jesus Christ as Christ and the church. And if we're not teaching our kids those things, then shame on us as believers. If we're not, we're not helping them. You, here's the problem. We think we're raising children. We're raising future adults. We have to prepare them to be adults. And, you know, that's one of the reasons we chose to homeschool our children. And the biggest thing, we can talk about homeschooling another day, but the biggest thing that people always say about homeschooling is, well, what about socialization? Ain't you worried about that? Yes, I'm worried about that. That's why we homeschooled them. Because we, we don't want our children to so, uh, socialize like most of the public school children socialize in this world. I'm very worried about how they were, how they were taught to socialize in this world. And that's one of the primary reasons that we... Uh, we homeschooled them and you can talk to most of our kids and it won't take you long to find out that they have they they do not lack in social skills right but that doesn't mean we're the perfect parents or the perfect homeschoolers i'm just telling you uh, we have a responsibility to change the narrative on what relationship is all about and we have to start when they're young we have to be intentional and we have to we have to model that for them in our lives anyway that's my spiel on the issue of of marriage and if you got more questions or, or comments about that just just leave them in uh in the comments below and uh, we'll, we'll get back to them so next week plan on talking about the issue of hell topic of hell and then barring anything else coming up we're going to start revelation on the following week now that'll be a long a long study in revelation because we're going to go verse by verse chapter by chapter through the book of revelation if we start that so hope to see you there uh, lord thank you for this day and thank you for this time pray that you will use it and that you will use it to bless uh, us and glorify your name in jesus name we pray amen